welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. Okay, before we get going, I wanted to remind you that we've got the 100th episode coming up. So if you have any burning questions that you'd like to ask me on pretty much any subject, make sure that you email them to me pronto. My email address is thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Now, members, make sure you check your email because the new password for the members' feed should be in there, and you don't want to miss out on the new stuff. In addition to the Viking episodes, we also have a radio interview that I did earlier this month that you might find interesting, so make sure you go check it out. Okay, so we have a battle coming up, but things are still changing rather rapidly, and there's some interesting stuff to cover regarding that, such as language, religion, culture, warfare... And that question that's probably been nagging at the back of your head for quite a while. Namely, if we have wealthy and powerful kings in England, why don't we have anything resembling a Roman Empire? Or, at least, why don't we have a mini-Roman Empire? So I know that I promised you the battle between Chalin and Athelbert. But we're actually going to spend some time talking about those issues. And besides, if I just listed what it said about that battle, this episode would be less than 20 seconds long. And that sucks, since it was the first outbreak of violence between two Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And that's huge. So today, I'm going to give you a foundational background of what's going on in England, and hopefully that'll make things easier to understand when we get to the warfare. So as I've been thinking about this, I realized that while we've been talking about the formation of rough cultural groups, I don't think I made it clear that now they're becoming what we'd recognize as ethnic groups. There's an interesting term that one of the scholars I read chose to use regarding what was going on during this period. He called it ethnogenesis. The argument is that ethnic groups were fluid in the sub-Roman period thanks to the massive vacuum that the Western Empire left in its wake. You have to keep in mind that Rome was quite interested in destroying the local culture and making everyone Roman. That was the whole idea behind Romanization. And that works out okay as long as the empire sticks around. But once it's gone, you've got trouble. What culture do you have to fall back on? So on the continent, you have people switching cultural groups from generation to generation. And at the same time, you have the Volker Wanderung, right? The great wandering of the peoples. Consequently, your grandfather might have considered himself Roman. Your father might be more Vandal in culture. And you might be Frankish in culture. Things were moving rapidly, and based on our Victorian model of history, you might have been told that this was the result of invasion. But as we're learning, there are a lot more reasons for cultural shifts beyond invasion, subjugation, and genocide. And one of those is ethnogenesis. Think about it in terms of the recent holiday we had, St. Patrick's Day. It seems like in the U.S., at least on that day, everyone is eager to point out how Irish they are, but the reality is much more complex. Of course, culturally, most people in the U.S. are American, but even on a lineage basis, claiming Irishness is complicated and a little bit muddy. For example, you might have a friend who claims to be Irish and points to the fact that his grandfather was Irish. Fair enough. But that's one grandparent out of four. So even if we assumed that that grandparent had two Irish parents and four Irish grandparents and so on and so forth, at best, your friend is only 25% Irish, right? And that's pretty good since most people on St. Patrick's Day are much less Irish than that. But that tendency, the tendency to say you're Irish even though you're only 25% Irish, tells us something, right? 
There's a selective emphasis being placed on one part of your friend's background. After all, he has three other grandparents, all of whom might be from another country. For example, they might all be English, but he's spotlighting just the Irish one and claiming descent from there. And chances are, if he has kids, he'll tell those kids, we're Irish, and thus emphasize that aspect of his background. So what's going on there? Well, there are a variety of influences that could cause that decision, if a decision was even made, to claim Irishness. There might be a familial thing. His father claimed Irishness based on the grandfather, and so he was just raised with that point of view. Alternatively, there might be social aspects. A lot of his circle spotlights their Irish ancestry, and so he does too because he wants to fit in. It might just be fashionable within his local culture to be Irish in descent. So that could be it. Or maybe there's economic advantages, like maybe there's some sort of Irish business association that he wants to join or something along those lines, or any number of other reasons. But the point is that despite the less than clear ethnic background, your friend is creating a clear ethnic identity for himself and probably for his kids too. Now let's go back in time 1500 years to our time period, the Anglo-Saxon period. There you have a fair amount of chaos, and some individuals and later families are rising to the top of the pack. If you were alive during that period, your grandfather might have called himself a Roman. His great-grandfather might have called himself a Briton, and maybe his great-grandfather might have called himself Iceni. But you're just some poor kid trying to scrape out a living. The village that you live in has been organizing around a fairly powerful local family who have the best land, gather food rent from a number of plots of land, and the head of the family is so rich that he can even afford a sword. These people are wealthy and powerful, and they're Saxon. At least, they say they're Saxon. So they're powerful in their own right, and also part of a powerful cultural group. Meanwhile, your neighbors are struggling to feed themselves, still speak a Brythonic language, and are trying to cling to the old Romano-British way of life. Ugh, how embarrassing. And it's pretty clear that the gods have abandoned the Brits and are siding with the Saxons now. Hey, wasn't your great-grandmother a Saxon woman? And even if she wasn't, would anyone remember back far enough to challenge your claim that she was a Saxon? I mean, that might be a way to get your foot in the door with a local thane. So it might be worth telling that story. And right there, you have ethnogenesis. You see, here's the thing about ethnogenesis. It's fluid. And as we just saw, foundation myths can happen at every level of society. At the top, you have stuff like Hengist and Horsa and their foundation myths. But that can stretch all the way down to individual families, like our hypothetical Briton and his allegedly Saxon great-grandmother. That, too, is a foundation myth. Hell, your friend and his Irish grandparent could well be a foundation myth. We have no idea if the grandparent was actually Irish. And that's the most interesting part about foundation myths. They don't have to be true. Nor do they have to be old. The foundation myth for families or communities can change from generation to generation, depending on the needs of the people telling the stories. And the fact is that this was an oral culture, and that would have made changing the stories even easier. So if you're a thane and you want to bolster your power base, you might shift the foundation myth a bit so that you're descended from some powerful legendary figure, or maybe even tie your lineage in with another lineage that's been ruling in the area for a while, or something along those lines. And that could account for the prevalence of Woden in English royal lines, 
and Ambrosius Aurelianus in Welsh royal lines. And it could also account for how confusing and messy some of the family trees could get. Looking into the contradictory records, it's not hard to imagine how there could be some outsiders trying to tie themselves into one royal line or another. So the myths were fluid, but so were the people. People are much more malleable than we assume they are. They typically try and fit into whatever culture is around them. And this doesn't need to be the culture of the majority. It just needs to be the dominant culture, the cool culture. We see evidence of this all over the place, and not just simply in terms of fashion and language, but in terms of entire worldviews. There are a wealth of examples you can find of this sort of shift just by looking at the events of the last century. But even in your daily life, you could probably see this sort of shift. The religious beliefs, the political beliefs, just about any belief tends to be molded by the community that you're surrounded by. Sure, there are always iconoclasts, but in general, people tend to fit in with the community that's around them. The truth is, people are surprisingly quick to adopt cultural shifts. And they're even more quick to assume that the changes that were made weren't even changes at all. That things have always been this way. I'll give you an example. If I decorated a nursery in pink, what gender do you think the baby would be? A girl, right? Because pink is a girl's color. It's soft. It's almost a fluffy color. If a hug was a color, it would be pink. And given that we tend to associate softness with femininity, there's an obvious pairing there. The association between pink and girls really just seems obvious and culturally solid. It's just the way it is. It's always been that way. But the truth of it is that pink wasn't a girl's color until the 1940s. Pink is just watered down red. And red is the color of virility. Pink wasn't cuddly. Not until department stores made it that way. I mean... You used to have little girls dressed in blue. Seriously. And while I'm blowing your mind here, young boys wore dresses in the days of FDR's childhood. FDR, when he was a young boy, wore a dress. What I'm getting at here is that our memories are short, and we tend to assume that things haven't changed when, in actual fact, the more you study the past, the more you discover that things rarely ever stay the same. Things are always changing. And sometimes you have great presidents wearing dresses. And my guess regarding this is that the impression that things don't change is a reaction to the fact that memory is less effective than we're comfortable with. And that's probably combined with our tendency to just not notice slow changes. And I have a couple examples to make this idea more concrete. Okay, for the first example, think about a serious trauma in your life. A death in the family, an incredibly bad breakup... If you're nerdy like me, an essay question on the bar exam for the one area of law that you didn't cram for because you were told that it had a low probability of being on the bar exam. UCC Article 9? Really? So think of that moment. And if you're thinking of something suitably awful, you're probably able to remember an enormous amount of detail, even if the trauma was years and years ago. Okay, so you got it? Now try and remember everything about dinner two weeks ago. How are you doing? Can you even remember what the main course was? It's kind of rough, right? Well, that's because it seems like certain events get seared into your memory, while others are hazy, to say the least. And I would argue that while traumatic events like battles and bar exams create the searing sorts of memories, cultural shifts and the like probably land in the hazy category. And that could account for why people just don't remember when things were different. 
The second example is weight gain. Have you ever had the experience of looking at a picture of yourself from a few years ago and then looking in the mirror and suddenly realizing that somehow, without realizing it, your once youthful body has been replaced by a Frankenstein entirely constructed out of Christmas hams? No? Maybe it's just me. But what I'm getting at is that weight gain is a slow process. Often people just don't notice it until something happens to highlight it, like that brutal picture. And again, that could well be what happens with these cultural shifts. Things change slowly, and you get the impression that things have always been this way because it happens so gradually. Only this time, there's no photograph to shock you into hitting the gym. It's a group shift, so it just looks like this is how things always were. There's no one to point out to you that, no, 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 things were different way back when. Alright, so the reason I spent so much time highlighting this is to help make these people a little more concrete and make this era make a little more sense. I mean, it's weird that they went from Romano-British to Anglo-Saxon relatively quickly, especially since we feel that culture is pretty solid. But the reality is that culture isn't that solid, so it isn't that weird that they shifted so fast. And one thing that could have helped push this shift along was the economy. This shift in culture came hand in hand with a shift in economy, right? We've talked about how the wealthy were driving the cultural shift, how this sense of cool really helped push it along. Well, economics also had a couple other important effects on the area. With all this discussion of integration rather than genocide, you might have been wondering what happened to the British language, the Brythonic language, and also what happened to Latin. I mean, things went pretty Germanic in the way of language fairly quickly. Now contrast that with what was going on over the channel. There you have Gaul being invaded by the Franks. And the Franks assimilated with the locals to a certain extent, which I think sounds familiar. Except in that case, you have Latin being integrated with Frankish, which is why French is a Romance language. But that's not happening in Eastern Britain. And even when the Anglo-Saxons moved into areas of Britain that were speaking Celtic languages, like Brythonic, very few Celtic words were adopted into the language. Why? Well, we don't have a clear answer, but there are a couple theories that I think are interesting and worth exploring. The first is that Britain wasn't speaking a single language. The Romano-British were already bilingual, at least partially. You had both Latin and Brythonic being spoken there. So the question is, which language would the Anglo-Saxons incorporate? But when you think about it, that explanation sort of falls apart because the answer is, rather than picking one language, they decided they wouldn't use either, and the majority of the population, because the settlers didn't outnumber the locals, decided to entirely drop their two languages and pick up a third. Out of, I don't know, frustration maybe? Maybe they just wanted to be able to say, to boldly go, and you can't do that in Latin. I don't know. I think the more likely answer to this puzzle is economics. We've already spoken about how the early settlers were farmers and came from communities with local economies rather than the large industrial economies of the Western Empire. So they were familiar with economies of small places rather than these massive industrial spiderwebs that Rome had. And you might remember that the Franks were still using some of those old Roman industrial sites as much as a century after they settled Gaul. And that might give us a hint as to why we have this shift in language in Britain, and also why we have a different kind of shift in language in France. The economy in Britain revolved around food, as the moneyed economy had vanished, and we'll talk more about the importance of that later. 
In those early days, farmers that didn't require large trading networks to survive would probably have wielded a great amount of economic power. And like we've spoken about, that would have allowed them to amass wealth and power and rise to the top. Well, here we had these immigrant farmers with their own language, who were probably doing a hell of a job at farming. And if you wanted to trade with them, you'd need some way to be able to communicate. And we have plenty of examples in history of where language has generally followed trade. What I mean by that is that when you have a center of trade speaking one language, the surrounding population that's trading with that area tends to pick up that language, because you need to in order to be able to trade. Well, I don't see why we should think that would be any different here. So if you had economic centers consisting of farmers who speak a Germanic language, it would probably behoove you to at least learn how to speak the bare minimum of their language, like enough to say, how much for that sheep? And if they were gathering wealth and power, you would probably need to be able to speak it fluently in order to have access to the halls of power, have access to legal protection, and all sorts of other goodies that you get with being part of a community. I mean, once we have kings, we have roving courts. You know, where the king and his warband would travel through his domain and stay at prominent homes. And don't forget that this is still a fairly fluid society as well as a gift-giving society. So being able to impress the king could greatly impact your status, or at least impact your ability to get a nice sword or something. So knowing the language, even if it was just so you could try and curry favor as the court passes through your village, wouldn't be a terrible idea. So maybe it was the economic influence of the people speaking the Germanic languages that led to the spread of Old English. And as potential support for this theory, you'll recall that across the channel you had some Roman industrial centers still operating, presumably by the same people who operated them prior to the Frankish invasion, meaning that Latin was probably still spoken there. I suspect that the Franks probably needed to learn at least a little Latin in order to be able to trade with them, and they probably did need to trade with them. I mean, these are industrial sites. And that could account for some of the integration of languages in Gaul. Conversely, maybe the Anglo-Saxon settlers didn't need to trade with the locals in Britain at all, thanks to Britain's depressed economy, and so they had no incentive to learn Latin or Brythonic. Now, to be fair, we do have examples of communities that were doing quite well, like Rexeter and Cadbury Congresbury. And those were Romano-British communities. And to start with, many Anglo-Saxon settlements looked like they were poor as hell. And yet you have relatively few Latin and Brythonic words in Old English, which could run counter to this idea, since, at least at first, it seems like the wealth of the area was in British hands. So this isn't a perfect theory. But in general, language does follow trade, so the focus on the Germanic language being spoken by the settling farmers, as well as the introduction of a food-based economy, just makes this one seem plausible to me. However, there might have been a certain level of cultural isolation going on as well. You see, there's another way that the settlement in Britain was quite different from what was going on in Gaul. Namely, the Franks converted to Christianity within about 15 years. And that's fast. That's really fast. Conversely, in Eastern Britain, Christianity was being abandoned, and other gods were being worshipped. The instinct is to assume that this was a simple reaction to the various calamities occurring. I mean, you had all kinds of calamities occurring, right? We've been speaking about that for ages. And that might have been the case. After all, if you're getting hit by the plague, strange dust clouds, losing battles, and generally having a rough go of it despite the fact that you're a pious Christian... 
And you have that Saxon guy over there who's doing really well. He's got this healthy family, decent crops. He's even got beer. And his tribe keeps winning fights. And yet he's worshipping pagan gods. You're not supposed to do that. This is not how it's supposed to go. This Woden fella seems to work out pretty well for him. How long do you think you'd hold out before you decide to give Woden a try yourself? And that might have been what happened. But why not in Gaul? More to the point, why did it go in the opposite direction? It makes me wonder if there were Brits who jumped into this new culture with both feet. Language, clothing, religion, all of it. And then there were those who refused to integrate and created a sort of iron curtain and refused to share their religion with their Anglo-Saxon neighbors. A sort of underhanded way to snub the barbarians by refusing them access to heaven, since they believed that they had the one true path to get to heaven. And we will see evidence of a significant amount of animosity between the Welsh and Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in coming episodes. So that is fairly interesting. And on the other side, it doesn't look like the Anglo-Saxons were overly interested in learning about this Christian god. Their gods were working out quite well, thank you very much. And this Christian god had a very weird requirement. You had to worship only him. In a world where gods were real and actively participating in the events on earth, snubbing every other god in the world in favor of this relatively new god, Jesus, probably seemed like a risky proposition. The point that I'm driving at is that none of this speaks of an atmosphere of cultural exchange. On one side, you might have petty snubbing. On the other side, you have a total lack of interest. And it's possible that it might have gone a step even farther. That given the growing tension between the British and the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, there might have been an undercurrent or even an outright demand of conformity. That as hostilities built up and warfare broke out, if you wanted to survive in these regions, you shouldn't speak, dress, or worship like the enemy. Essentially, what we're talking about here is cultural purification, which, naturally, wouldn't allow for the integration of languages or the spread of religion. The irony, of course, being that it wasn't too long ago that these enemies were part of the same culture. After all, as far as their lineages were concerned, the bulk of their ancestors were probably Romano-British and Celts, regardless of whether they were now part of an Anglo-Saxon or British kingdom. But, of course, the chances that they actually remembered that is essentially zero. Anyway, this whole thing is just weird. When we get to the Welsh cast, you'll see that you have Latin and other aspects of Roman life hanging on in the West. But in the East, even though we don't have evidence of large-scale displacement of the Romano-British, you have languages and religions just vanishing. And just across the channel, there's a much larger migration, but like I mentioned a few minutes ago, that one resulted in the Franks adopting Latin words and converting to Christianity, which at least to me, seems a bit counterintuitive based upon what happened in England. But unfortunately, we're not entirely sure what was going on. All we have are theories as to why England reacted differently to invasion than Gaul, and why the kingdoms took such dramatically different turns. And speaking of kingdoms, we have them now. In fact, we have Bretwaldas, who were kings powerful enough to claim overlordship over the kingdoms south of the Humber. So the question you might be asking is why don't we have the development of an empire? It wasn't so long ago that the Western Empire fell, and Britannia had been a key player in several empires and rebellions, so it was clear that it could be done. So when are we going to get to that? 
Well, there's a key fact that really hamstrings the kings of Britain from transforming their kingdoms into empires. Namely, money. They don't have it. I don't mean that they lacked resources, though, in comparison with the emperors, they were certainly rather poor. But I mean that they lacked a moneyed economy. The Anglo-Saxon economy was based upon land and food. In some ways, that's useful. For example, it's very useful for kings to maintain absolute power over those who serve them, since ultimately all the land is theirs. But it's also simple. You don't have to expend extra effort creating a currency. And you don't have to worry about enforcing the purity of that currency. That's the dirty secret about a moneyed economy. There will always be unscrupulous people out there looking to get rich by counterfeiting your currency, or, in the case of a metal-based currency, debasing your coins with lower-quality metals or reduced weights. It's a pain in the butt to maintain a moneyed economy. But it's incredibly useful. I mean, sure, it simplifies bartering and makes trade a lot easier, but what's really, really important here is that it allows for taxes. Sure, you have things like food rent in the Anglo-Saxon economy. But do you really think that Emperor Caracalla would have been interested in the bushels of wheat and two barrels of ale that you sent him from Oxfordshire? No. He wanted money. One, because it was more useful. Two, because it wouldn't go bad. That is, unless he let those unscrupulous people get out of hand. And three, because it was easier to collect. With money, you can have an army of administrators and tax collectors spread out through your empire, collecting taxes and bringing them back to you. It allows a ruler to reach out and collect resources over vast stretches of territory that would have been impossible for an Anglo-Saxon king to collect. And through that, the emperor can engage in huge construction projects and also amass enormous armies. With a food-based economy, there is just no real way to rule over enormous stretches of land. And consequently, there is just no way to muster the sort of resources and manpower necessary to have all those legions that Rome had utilized. And without those legions, you really just can't hold the land. Hell, even the Bretwaldas really weren't holding all the land south of the Humber. Rather, they just had kings who promised fealty to them. And that's probably the best they could have managed with their economy. Basically proxy ruling over just a portion of Britannia. A Roman Empire, this was not. And you can trace that back to their food-based economy. So once again, everything comes back to food. You were scoffing when I spent all that time talking about food last year, weren't you? Well, there's a method to my madness. And food really is at the center of a lot of this story. Anyway, we're running out of time here and my voice is starting to go, as you probably noticed. So we're going to stop and next time I'll talk about the one thing that I mentioned in my intro but failed to get to warfare. And I'll also cover that battle between Athelbert and Chalin. I think it'll be fun. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Twitter. Just look for at britishpodcast. And you can join us at the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Click get involved and click forums. And again, don't forget, we've got that 100th episode coming up. So send me your questions. All right. Thanks for listening.